Bible, you can open to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Last week, Pastor Ryan did a great job helping us to understand how sometimes blind people can see. They trust in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. But people who say they can see and don't think they need Jesus remain blind. And at the end of that story, what is so interesting about the end of that story is that the blind man who is healed by Jesus on the Sabbath because he believes in Jesus and because he stands up for Jesus and his family does as well. They're excommunicated from the synagogue. I'll tell you a story about another guy that was excommunicated. He started the Protestant Reformation. His name is Martin Luther. I tend to think of Martin Luther as just this kind of firebrand, just this windstorm of a human being who blew into the Catholic Church one day and posted his 95 thesis on, on the Wittenberg door and gave them what for? And started what we now consider to broadly be the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, actually, when he posted those theses on the door, uh, if you read them online, you can read them online, what you'll find is that they're, the tone of every single one of those propositions is actually very academic and very cordial. As a matter of fact, he has more questions than he has accusations. Some of the accusations are actually in the questions. One of the questions was, why do you tax the poorest of the poor to to build beautiful, ornate basilicas, like the one they were building for St. Peter, when the Pope's salary could cover it? I mean, he just asked questions like that. Why? Why? Why do people have to buy indulgences when Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapters 1 and 2 say that a person is saved by faith, by grace through faith alone? And so he asked these questions, and so he was summoned down to Augsburg to have essentially what was a three-day debate. And in that three-day debate, it was clear who was the winner. I mean, just arguing on scriptural grounds, Martin Luther won that debate. And 120 days later, he was given an ultimatum. You will renounce this crazy talk about the Bible and about faith alone and about grace in Jesus. You will renounce it, you will recant, or you will be excommunicated from the church. And Martin Luther chose expulsion. He chose excommunication. And that's the kind of story we read last week where someone stood up for Jesus. They stood up for the truth, and they said, no, I believe the truth, and they are excommunicated from the Jerusalem synagogue from all religious life. Imagine that. Now, Jesus today, what he is going to do, here's what Jesus is going to do. It's very subtle. You and I would miss it, but they know exactly what he's doing. He is going to put himself in the category of an excommunicated person with the language that he uses today. And I want to show you just how. So in chapter 10, starting with verse 1, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you Pharisees. Now, mark that. He is talking to the Pharisees. Anyone who does not enter the sheep gate by the pen, or the pen by the sheep gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. In other words, you. The one who enters by the gate, though, is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. <laughs> Religious, it takes a seminary degree to misunderstand Jesus, right? And therefore Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Me. So he's spelling out the metaphor now. He's saying, this is it. Uh, it's me. Therefore, Jesus said, uh, very truly, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And they will come in and go out and find pasture. And the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to its fullest measure or have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. And the man runs away because he's a hired hand. And he doesn't care anything for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd, he says. And I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen either. He's talking about you and me, Gentiles. And I must bring them in also. And they too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Now no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. And this command I received from the Father. So the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Every time Jesus talks in the temple complex, the crowd is split. Because many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? And others said, are you kidding me? Use your rationale. These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open blind eyes in the name of God? Right? And so what we're looking at here today is we're looking at three characters in this discourse. And the first one is the shepherd king of Israel. The first one is Jesus is the shepherd king of this nation and of the Gentiles, of all the nations. And so we read this in verses 2, 11, 12, and 14. And what does it mean for Jesus to be the shepherd king? Well, immediately the metaphor is not lost on the Pharisees. Here's why. Because in addition to tax collectors... And prostitutes and the pimps uh, in that day, the only people who were more reviled than tax collectors and pimps were shepherds. Imagine that. So now we read the story. The shepherds were watching the flocks by night. <laughs> you know, this beautiful story. To them, it was uh, derogatory. The shepherds were reviled. As a matter of fact, along with the tax collectors, the shepherds are excommunicated from synagogue life. So now what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is this. You just excommunicated a man who was born in the image of God, who was lost and now is found, who was blind and now can see. You just put him outside of the Jerusalem synagogue, and I'm telling you, I'm identifying with him. He belongs to me. I'm the shepherd and I'll be happy to take the same sentence. And so Jesus identifies with him, but Jesus is not just trying to identify with the disenfranchised. Jesus is trying to rehabilitate the image of the shepherd because for the Pharisees, it was lost. 
It was lost. They had turned it into something that it was never intended to be. And I'll show you why in a second. But here's what Jesus is trying to remind them of. It's Ezekiel chapter 34. Verses 1 through 4, God indicts the shepherds of Israel. Now, in this metaphor, the shepherds surely does mean the rulers, the people who are keeping uh, the over, who are watching over the people of God. And so here's what it says in verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. Who is he? I mean, in my mind, I think of Ezekiel as this wild guy, man. This crazy kind of balding prophet with kind of wild hair and fiery eyes. But the truth is, he was about 19 or 20. A young guy, probably a handsome guy. He was called by God and he was plucked out and God calls him the son of man. That's his prophetic moniker. That's his namesake. And it says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves, should not shepherds also take care of the flock? You eat the curds and clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. That's God's people. That's Israel. Verse 4, you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. This is not how shepherds are supposed to act. I mean, I'm telling you, as a pastor, the word pastor in the New Testament is the New Testament word for shepherd. That's why people think of us as shepherds. But I'm here to tell you, it is a good, it is good practice for any leader of any organization, whether you lead your business or you are middle management or you uh, lead for someone else or you're a pastor, it doesn't matter what you are, a volunteer in the church, read Ezekiel 34 once a year at least because it will just reorient you to the heart of God. What is the heart of God for his sheep? The heart of God for his sheep is to heal them when they're hurting, to bind them back up, to bring them in when they're lost, to care for them. You hear the heart of God's care. Now, God says in this chapter, in chapter 34, I'm going to do all that. I'm going to do all that. But he uses a very curious It's really not even a phrase. It's translated as a phrase in English, but it's really one word. It's the word ani. And that is one way in the Hebrew of saying I, but it's an emphatic I. It means I, myself. I, ani, me, alone. And this is what God says in 11, 15, 20, 23, and 24 he'll do. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I, myself, ani, me, I will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. Verse 20, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, Ani, me, alone, I will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, and he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be their prince. Who's the prince? The son of God. The prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is clearly, clearly the kind of imagery that Jesus is trying to remind them exists in their Bible. When God speaks of himself as shepherd, when God speaks of his son, his prince, David, 
Now, obviously, he's not talking about King David because King David died hundreds of years before this prophecy was given. He is talking about a descendant of David, a prince, one who is going to embody God's shepherding rule. God himself is going to do it, and he is going to do it through his son, his servant, David, the descendant of David. So Jesus is trying to identify this idea of being the shepherd king with their Old Testament, which they have screened out. They have forgotten it. Jesus is the good shepherd also, he says in the text, who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean? We think of crucifixion, right? We think, yeah, Jesus is going to give his life on a cross for them. Now, ultimately, that is exactly what Jesus is referring to. That's the ultimate reference. But in this uh, particular passage, it actually has uh, a, a metaphorical meaning. This is what shepherds did at the gate or the door to the sheep pen. So what they would do is they would bring in their sheep into their little enclosure, and then they would lie down between the sheep and their predators, poachers, wolves, the mountain lions. And so they came to be called the sheep gates. The, the, literally, people in the ancient world would refer to a shepherd as either a shepherd or a sheep gate. So now when he says, I'm the gate, this is not a clumsy mixing of metaphors. This is Jesus' way of, of using images that are rich in their environment to say, I'm the gate. I lay down. I, if you want to get to my sheep, you got to go through me. And you can't come in the sheep pen if you want to be a sheep unless you come through me and I let you in because I'm the good shepherd. Do you know this morning that the good shepherd cares about your life? He cares about what you care about. He cares about your stuff, man. He cares for you. He wants to feed you. He wants to, he wants to provide for you. He wants to give you eternal life and all the abundance that comes with that new kingdom life. The second group of people that we're talking about here are the thieves and robbers. And Jesus says, chapter 2, that the thieves and the robbers are, they are the uh, Pharisees. Not chapter 2, chapter 10. They're the Pharisees. Now, normally when we quote chapter 10, verse 10, we normally think he's talking about the devil, but he's not. When he says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, he's not talking about Satan at all. The Satan is not in this chapter at all. Now, ultimately, maybe he is, probably is, but he's talking about religious leaders. That's the context here. Let me show it to you. Verses 1, 7, 8, and 10. He says, very truly, I tell you this. He says, anyone, you Pharisees. So now we know who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious leaders. These guys make up one half of the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel. He says, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Who's he talking to? Them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And all who have come before me are thieves and robbers. Who came before him? The Pharisees. But the sheep have not listened to them. And so the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Who's he talking about? Now, the only group of people who were more reviled than tax collectors, pimps, prostitutes, and shepherds are thieves and robbers. Now, you may not like your neighborhood prostitute, but you for sure do not like the neighborhood thieves. Thieves. 
And historians tell us that they were everywhere. They were in every corner and every nook of the empire. They were a scourge. And here's why, because they didn't have a public police force. The Roman soldiers were not a public police force. They were in for- They were soldiers. And so if you, were, if you had something valuable in your home, you actually had to hire your own police force. In neighborhoods where you could not hire a police force, uh, if you didn't have the wealth to do that, you had to form what, what we think of as neighborhood watches. So you had to police your own community. Think about this. This. So thieves and robbers were rampant in society. Now, thieves are usually associated with those who break in your home and steal your stuff. Robbers are usually associated with brigands who wait for you on the roadside and wait for an unsuspecting wayfarer or sojourner to come by, and then they ambush you and take your stuff. So everybody hated these guys. Everybody wanted these guys put to the crosses. And Jesus says, you're the thieves and robbers. And how were they thieving and robbing the people of God? How are they doing it? Well, this is what religious people do. This is what the religious, well-meaning religious people do. I want you to write this down. If you have some paper, you can write it down. Religion kills. Religion kills. Jesus wasn't a fan of their religion. The Pharisees, no. He's not a fan at all. And so what the religious leaders do is they have a tendency to sort of Death by paralysis by analysis. You know what I mean? Like they have a tendency to heap on you more than you can possibly bear. And this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Now, let me tell you a little history on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to pass it off to the people like they were an ancient sect. They really were. They wanted people to believe that the oral Torah, which was this sort of man-made tradition that they surrounded what they called the hedge law. They surrounded to safeguard and protect the written word, Moses' Torah and the prophets. What they had done is created all of these extra laws to ensure that people obeyed Moses' law. And what they wanted people to believe was that this law goes back to Moses. It was just passed orally through the Purishim or through these pure leaders that is a lie. In fact, we know from history that, that uh, the oral Torah and the Pharisees, the group called the Purishim, popped up in about 160 BC, and they're associated with the Hasmonean dynasty. They were in league with the Hasmoneans so that they could help the Hasmoneans overthrow the Greeks, and then they became a very prominent political party, and they just never left. By Jesus' day, they comprised, like I said, of the Jewish high court. Now, why is this important? Because the scribe, the king, and the priest are Old Testament. Those offices have a vocation and a calling in the Old Testament. God instituted those offices. He did not institute the office of the Pharisee. No. (laughs) They have not come through the gate. They have come illegitimately. And so this analogy for them is just bam, bam, bam. It's just a sock in the face. And Jesus is saying this publicly so all their disciples know you didn't come through the word. You don't have an Old Testament vocation. You don't have a Hebrew Bible vocation. You're false. And your Torah, your, what you call the ancestors tradition is no more than 200 years old. Think about that. If you go to the Smithsonian, you see the Declaration of Independence, what do you think? 
wow, that's an ancient document. Unless you're from China. <laughs> you don't think that. Because they've been around for thousands of years. Their culture's been around for thousands of years. We're relatively new on the scene. And so this is what they want the people to think, that they are ancient, that, they, that their tradition has antiquity. It does not. And so the thieves and robbers are the false teachers who rob God's people of the opportunity to worship in spirit and in truth, who blind the people to the light of God's word and his Torah and his truth in Jesus by perpetuating a man-made tradition that kills, it doesn't bring life. Jesus said it kills. Religion kills. And the evidence against them was their treatment of this poor blind man, this man who was made in the image of God, this image bearing human being who was set right he can see now he can go get a job this man can work and provide for himself because he can see and what did they do they condemned him his family and now they're condemning jesus for healing him because he healed on the sabbath and broke their oral law so how do religious leaders steal and pillage the life of the people they do it three ways they keep them from Christ. So the first way they do it is they keep you from Jesus. The last thing they want to do is for you to see the life that is in Christ from God. So they will, they will teach you and tell you about anything else than Jesus. And when Jesus is not the focus of someone's teaching who's purporting to be a spiritual leader, they're a false teacher. If Christ is not the center... And these guys are trying to divert teaching and the focus away from Christ. What else are they doing? They shifted the people's focus from honoring God to honoring them. This is really dangerous. Every single confrontation that Jesus has with these men and their disciples in the crowd, he has to say, you seek the glory of men. I seek the glory of the Father. And the Father glorifies me. That's what he says. So they are seeking the glory of men. And it's so dangerous to begin to seek the glory of people instead of living no matter what you do for the glory of God. Let me tell you, in my vocation, in our uh, way of life here, um, in our job, uh, Daniel and I and Ryan and Patrick, it is especially a temptation when people begin to tell you, oh, hey, great job, Pastor. Great job. Now, you can still tell me that. I hope you do. Great job, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. You're not wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but <laughs> words of encouragement are, is my love language, so that's fine. But when you begin to crave that, and you begin to show up on a Sunday morning or whenever you minister, and you begin to say, oh, man, I, I can't wait for somebody to pat me on the back and say, great job, Jeff, or great job, pastor, or great job, worship leader. When you begin to live for that, your eyes are Focused on the wrong thing. You take your eyes off the glory of the one and only and put them on the glory of yourself. And that's dangerous. And this is just what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus says, you know what you love? You love to be greeted in the marketplaces, the agora. Oh, honored reverend. You love those titles. You love the honorific titles. You love the pomp and the tinsel that is associated with your vocation. And Jesus says that is the wrong focus. You should be living instead for the glory of the one and only God. And they kept people busy with religion. Because of all these laws and these extra laws, they kept people busy with religion. Now, I want you to know this. If Satan can't make you bad, he makes you what? Busy. And if he can make you busy, 
He really wants to make you busy with religion. The religion that kills. The religion that will siphon the life out of you. The draining, life-sucking force of nature that is religion. Fastidious rule-keeping so that you can sort of present yourself to God as good enough for God. Oh, blah. Away with it. Jesus comes for disciples. He comes to enfold the sheep into his pasture. So listen to me. Jesus is the shepherd king. He wants to rule your life and rule your heart. And the thieves and robbers are all kinds of religious teachings and doctrines that would take you, that would siphon the life out of you by taking you away from the life that God has for you. And then thirdly, the sheep. We learn about the sheep. The sheep never leave the shepherd. They don't. They don't leave the shepherd. The, the first thing that he says here in verse 3 is that the sheep listen to my voice. He says that the sheep listen to my voice. Now, how do the sheep listen to his voice? Well, this doesn't just mean that they sit around at his feet and listen to him teach on a Saturday morning or a Saturday evening at, at Sabbath. No, that's not what it means. It means that they follow it means they follow what he has to say. Now, this also is a metaphor that's very common for them because almost every family had at least one sheep and one goat. And what some of the families who lived in very close, compacted domiciles, what they would do is they would pen their sheep together. And a sheep that lives with you knows your voice. He knows your voice. And so if that sheep grows up in your house, he knows your little kid's voice. If that sheep, uh, is, you know, is out there with the rest of the sheep in that pen, he just knows the timbre, the quality of your call. Come on. Just like your dog does. How many of you have disobedient dogs? <sighs> I'm pretty sure Oliver, my dog, does not know my voice. He's not my disciple, man. False disciple. <laughs> Usurper. Disciple of children of the devil. <laughs> so, but these sheep would know. And so you could pin your sheep with a bunch of other families and go in like with a little co-op, little pin, and you could have all your sheep in there together, but they know your voice. And so when you call them out, the other sheep, they don't come out. They come out because they hear you. And what does it mean to listen to the voice of God? It means to hear what the scripture says is true about Jesus and respond in faith and trust. That's what it means. As when, when I was a kid, man, I could not wait to learn more about my faith. I think I was probably about 15, and I had just come to the Lord in dramatic fashion, grade A. And I just had this incredible experience with the Holy Spirit washing me clean of my sin, and I had many sins uh, even though I was only 15 years old, I, I had sinned a lot. And uh, so I remember meeting with a mentor of mine. He was a spiritual mentor. And we were meeting at Shoney's Big Boy Restaurant in Richmond, Virginia, on the west side of town. And I remember sitting there with him, and I was just talking about, like, how I was going to share Jesus. And the waitress would come over to the table, and I'm like, and I'm still smoking at this time. I'm like, hey, lady, do you know Jesus, you know? And like, I mean, I, mean, I was rough. And my mentor who was discipling me, his name is Floyd, Floyd Ellsworth. Floyd says, uh, Jeff, what do you know about the, the, the Trinity? And I go, ah, I don't know nothing. <laughs> I just love Jesus. And he began to explain the essentials of the faith to me. 
And that doctrine of the triune God, this God who is one God existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, as a sheep, I listened to Jesus' voice. Not him. I listened to God because I was so hungry to grow in my faith. And I didn't kick back on it. I didn't push back on it. I did have some questions for clarity. But my heart was so eager to embrace the truth and hear God's voice. And some people, sometimes they, they come up to me and they say, I, I just, I don't, I don't get the Bible. I don't get it. I don't like studying the Bible. I don't like reading it. And my question for you would be, are you really a sheep? Maybe you're just a religious person who grew up in church and you really have not been transformed by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have not been born again the way Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Maybe you're a false sheep. Maybe you are. Maybe it's time to come to faith. Because when the Holy Spirit is present in your life, I'm telling you, he creates this indigenous innate hunger and thirst for the things of God. And you may not understand everything yet, but I'll tell you this, the sheep listen to his voice. The sheep hear what he has to say and they follow that. Look at verses four and 26. The sheep also follow him in faith. So when they hear the truth about Jesus and what is the truth about Jesus? Well, the truth is, is that he is the son of God from eternity past. John chapter 1 teaches us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the reason he could be in the beginning with God is because he already was God from eternity past. And so God's Son, God the Son, John 1, 14, became enfleshed and tabernacled in a human life and dwelt for a while among us. And the Bible says in that human life, he was perfectly obedient to the commands and the will of the Father. Perfectly obedient. And as a perfect, obedient son, he is tried by the Sanhedrin as a blasphemer. He is handed over to Rome, and he is put to death by Rome as a potential insurrectionist, an insurgent, a revolutionary. And he dies on the cross, a vicarious, substitutionary death for you and for me as the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then on the third day, he raises from the dead, victorious to vindicate his claim on the world. And he raises victorious over sin, death, and hell. And then he ascends to the Father at the right hand of the power of God, assuming his rightful place as Lord over creation, pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear on a weekly basis. People just worshiping the Lord God in the power of the Spirit. And, and if your heart, in your heart, you could say, I don't, believe, I don't buy that. You're not a sheep. Or you might be a nice religious person. Uh, you, you, your heart, you may be the nicest person I've ever met. But if in your heart you cannot say, oh, yes, I embrace that. He is my spotless, sinless, atoning sacrifice who raised a victorious resurrection and has poured the Holy Spirit out for me and the forgiveness of my sins. If you couldn't say that, you're not a sheep. Not yet. You might be someday, but not right now. And so the sheep, they listen to his voice and they follow him in his teaching. They embrace his teaching. Why? Because verse 5, the sheep know him. The sheep know Jesus. See, when you know him, you know his voice when you hear it. 
When you know him, you want to follow his voice when you hear it. And as an analogy of that, um, years ago I found in an old shoebox a bunch of letters from my grandpa and my grandma. And they were a bunch of hot love letters from the 1940s, right? Young buff sailor and a young hot lady in the 1940s. And so you read these letters, you go, oh man, these, I, here's what I know. Intellectually, cognitively, I know these people have something to do with my existence. Like me living in the world. But I don't know them. I never met them. I, I mean, I met my grandma. I knew her for a little while until she died when I was very young. And I don't even remember, I hardly even remember her. And I have no memory of my grandpa. None. He died before I I came into the world in an accident. So when I read the letters, I can't hear their voices. I can't hear them because I never knew them. I can read them. I can become educated. I can memorize the letters. I can tell you what the letters say, but I never knew them. And I don't know their voice. By contrast, Carrie Neubauer, this young, lovely lady at Northwest (laughs) University in Seattle, Washington, uh, that I met, we hit it off and uh, started dating pretty seriously. And I would go away for the summer on what, what were called these summer PR teams, uh, these public relations teams for the school. And I would stay at these Christian camps and I would get letters almost every single week from her. And they were like just pages long because you know when you're young and in love and you're courting or you're dating, you just want to pour out your your whole heart to your lover. And so I just, I would wait to get these things. I'd be standing there waiting, you know, like at the mailbox for the mailman to deliver. And then I would pour over every line and read them again and read between the lines. And then I would write her back. And usually the content of me writing her back was something like, hey, what did you mean by that one thing? Do do you really think I'm awesome? (laughs) I'm super hot. (laughs) Right, right. So I would want clarity because there are some things I needed clarity on. I didn't understand. And even though I didn't understand everything she had to say in the letters, and sometimes I needed context, and sometimes I needed to study it out and find out how hot does she think I am. I knew her voice because I knew her. I would read the letter, and I still can today, and I could hear her voice just as clear as a bell. And that's the thing about reading the Bible. You see, when you get your eyes down in his word and you start reading this amazing love letter from God to us and you start reading the Psalms. I remember when I was a new believer, I I didn't know anything about the Bible. And so I just opened it up right in the middle and started reading. And that was the Psalms. And isn't, isn't it amazing as a born again person, how you can open this book and start reading the Psalms and the sentiments and the heartache and the prayers and the outcry of the Psalmist. It feels like yours. It feels like you wrote that prayer from your heart. Isn't it amazing how as a new believer you could read through the New Testament and read Jesus' read the red letters and somehow you may not understand everything he has to say. You may have to study it out. You may have to ask some questions from a mentor, but somehow it just fills you up. You see, Jesus said, if you're my sheep, you know my voice. And the reason why you know my voice and you can follow it is because you know me. Do you know him today? Do you know him? Will you pray with me? Bow your head, close your eyes, please. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we just want to say we want to know you. 
And this morning, if your heart is reaching out to God, you don't even know what to ask for. You don't even know if you're a believer. Maybe you're just a church person. You were raised in church all your life, but you don't know Jesus. Will you just reach out with your heart right now in faith and tell him that you need him? Ask him for forgiveness of your sins. Thank him for the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Ask him to fill you right now, to baptize you in the power, life-changing power of the Holy Spirit and give you a hunger and thirst for righteousness in your soul. And if that's in your heart right now, would you just reach out to him? Lord, we do. We ask you for new birth. We ask you for new eyes. We ask you for a new heart that is risen from the dead. We ask you for that in Jesus' awesome, powerful name. Amen. 